0: So welcome uh, formally to the Center for American Progress and to our Science Progress Fair. Uh, My name is Jonathan Moreno. I'm a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Senior Fellow and Editor-in-Chief of Science Progress. Uh, You're not going to hear much from me today, which is probably a blessed thing. Um, Our goal in this effort is to put science back on the public agenda and to convey the same kind of excitement and enthusiasm about science that you have, and in particular, um, its importance for the future of the country. Uh, I'm a father of uh, two more or less grown children and uh, what happens to the country in the next 30, 40, or 50 years is going to be of decreasing personal significance to me but in- increasing importance to them and to their children. In the 21st century, uh, we have a, a view at, at CAP that science is not optional for a, for a, a prosperous and, and powerful and important country. 100 years from now, people will look back at what we do, partly what we do in this room, in this place, and uh, ask themselves if we met the challenge of the future of science and the sense that science has not gotten its due, uh, which is not characteristic of the history of the country. So that's all I want to say. I do, uh, you'll hear me. You'll come back a little bit later and thank a lot of people. This could not happen without a tremendous effort. Uh, and I particularly want to thank uh, John Podesta, president of CAP and, and, the, and the, the CAP board Uh, who saw the importance of this effort from the very beginning and saw that it's really an an important and novel thing for us to do so uh, john podesta uh, will introduce our keynoter
1: uh let me start by thanking jonathan moreno for having led this effort really from the beginning and and uh it was uh uh We'll hear, I think, a little bit more from him later today. But I want to thank you all for joining on this exciting occasion, the uh, launch of a print version uh, of our new journal Science Progress. Uh, as some of you know, the, the uh, and I'm going to say a little bit more, the electronic version has been up for a little while. Um, Neil, I'm going to introduce Neil Lane, and he could testify that when I say this is an exciting occasion, particularly for me, first of all, it's the first science fair we've had at the uh, Center for American Progress, and I thank the event staff for get, put, pulling that off. That's, that's probably not the usual fair at a think tank. Uh, and second, is, as I was about to say, Neil's going to testify that I'm a science geek, and so um, uh, he knows that, that this is particularly meaningful for me. Uh, when the Center uh, first launched Science Progress last October, we, uh, as, as Jonathan mentioned, we wanted to improve the understanding of science and technology amongst policymakers to further the common good. Uh, as a web magazine, scienceprogress.org had uh, almost 30,000 unique visitors in its first month, uh, and it's nearly doubled the, in that in six months. Uh, and I think we're getting more traffic every day. I think that's due... Uh, to the fact that people recognize that science is the stuff of progress. Uh, the Center for American Progress was founded with the goal of generating new ideas, uh, to build capacity, to shape the national dialogue, to influence the media and policy ra- makers on a range of policy issues. And in that vein, our policy experts cover quite a wide range of issue areas and uh, often work across disciplines to tackle complex and interrelated problems. This year we're, we're really kind of focused because I think the nation is really focused on four big uh, challenges that the that the, the country faces. One is economic mobility at a time uh, when we see growing disparity between the uh, wealthy and the, and the poor in this country. Uh, a second is universal health coverage and how we're going to Connect up uh, the uh, and improve and make more cost effective uh, and cover everyone with affordable quality health coverage in this country. A third, which I spend a lot of my time in particular on, which is the energy challenge we face from uh, from climate change and our. Uh, addiction to oil. Uh, I think it's perhaps one of the biggest challenges that the country faces to move from a uh, high carbon uh, economy to a low carbon economy in a, in a very uh, rapid order on an industrial scale that probably uh, 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 challenges the way we think about. Uh, uh, the, the capacity of government to really move uh, change in, in this country, but it's something we, that's vitally important to our own security and the security of billions of people around the world. And finally, building that platform for sustainable security that, uh, that deals with uh, both uh, the challenges that we uh, face uh, here at home as well as abroad. Those are tough challenges. They're going to require new ideas and innovative solutions. Hopefully, we've been able to put some of those out uh, to date. The good news is that science and technology have the potential to address all of those uh, specific issue areas, um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're working uh, and drawing on our expertise in, in the science arena across, again, that whole range of issues. Our commitment to examining current issues in science and technology, both practical and ethical, Uh, springs from our commitment to progressive change. Uh, Our first print edition of Science Progress and its sister online publication are charged with ensuring that the best and most pragmatic solutions are presented to the public, but that we've thought them through, we thought of consequences. And then trying to uh, have a healthy debate and promote the best of the best in constant dialogue with policymakers and in state houses, on university campuses around the country, in the media, uh, as I said, we're engaged in a great policy debate right now in, in the context of our national uh, election. Uh, with that being said, I want to congratulate my colleagues, Jonathan Moreno, Ed Paisley, uh, Andrew Pratt, for making today's event possible, for their tremendous work getting the project off the ground. Uh, we're also joined you'll hear later, from uh, Kit Batten, who who is our, uh, is our resident uh, 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 environmental and energy scientist on our staff and who's really... Uh, been ma- has a, had a major commitment to this for Chris Mooney, uh, Mike Regnetta, uh Shannon Ryan uh, and Sam Berger is here I think who really uh, uh, helped get this started who's now just finished his first year at Yale Law School but he's back for the American Constitution Society Convention. Uh, I saw him there earlier this morning and he said uh, he would be here and it's really a great 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 privilege to announce, uh, you'll hear from him later uh, that we've been able to I think as a result of this commitment, attract uh, really one of the great science writers in the country, Rick Weiss from the Washington Post, who's uh, going to be joining us uh, here as a senior fellow uh, at the Center for American Progress, and we're really, really excited about that. So uh, now I'd like to turn the mic over to Dr. Neil Lane, a a lifelong scientist and educator. Uh, Let me tell you a bit about him. Dr. Lane is a leading authority on the role of science and technology. Technology and public policy. Uh, He he served. We served together. Had a lot of fun together in the White House, uh, where he was the the President's Science Advisor and ran the uh, White House Office on Science and Technology Policy. Before that, he had uh, been the Director of the National Science Foundation. Uh, We founded in in the late 1990s. The uh, there's a a new story on earmarking today in the Washington Post, uh, Neil and I seem to make a cottage industry of of uh, preventing earmarking of the ni- uh, of the NSF budget in the late 1990s that probably broke down a little bit in the last couple of years. Um, uh, but uh, I think that uh, uh, Neil was really a a, a a great advocate for science in the White House across again that whole wide spectrum of, of, of issues in terms of protecting science funding and the increases that we saw at the end of our administration, uh, but also bringing to bear uh, the latest uh, in, in in knowledge to the president's attention. Uh, I, had the, I had the privilege of, of actually organizing uh, the information that went to the president, uh, both in my earliest days in the White House and then uh, as chief of staff, and he got weekly reports. And the only one he really ever wanted to see was the one from Neil, as he will can can attest which he would mark up uh, all uh, uh, all uh, over. I think he was extremely uh, curious about scientific development, and and uh, it was great to work for somebody like that. But it, it also meant that we needed a science advisor who could uh, who could really present that information in a in a in a uh, way that would that uh, he had the uh, could absorb and 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 really uh, convert into policy uh, before coming to head the NSF, Dr. Lane served as the Chancellor of the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs at the Provost at Rice University in Houston. He's currently the Malcolm Gillis University Professor at Rice. Uh, he's also a Senior Fellow at the James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy. I've been down there uh, to visit him and, and and the work that he's doing uh, at, at Rice. And it's a great pleasure that he's been able, uh, that he agreed to help us launch this Uh, this product, but also that he's able to uh, be with us to to, uh, uh, participate in this event. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Neil Lane.
2: Thank you very much, John. I can indeed testify that John Podesta is a science geek. Uh, As you know, John is not uh, probably among the world's most patient uh, individuals that you might have not ever, you might have worked with. But he exercised enormous patience, I must say, in allowing me to take some precious time at the staff meeting to talk to the uh, White House staff about issues I thought were very important, uh, the cloned sheep dollies, family relations, and how the kids were doing and so forth. Uh, the, you may remember the attack on Pluto, it was a, is this a, <laughs> yeah. So these were, and there they were even lesser important things that we talked about. More seriously, John as the chief of staff is quite extraordinary. He was even-handed, so uh, yes, he cared about science and t- technology, as he does now, and, uh, and protected me from time to time, I guess, when I was about to get my legs cut out from under me, but fair to everybody and uh, much appreciated. I felt very privileged to serve in the administration uh, of Bill Clinton and Al Gore, and was very fortunate to serve at a time when John was chief of staff. So I thank you for having me here. You may have noticed that I was not invited to actually give a science presentation. I don't know what that might mean, but but uh, I'll, I'll do the best with what I have here. I have been excited about science progress since I first heard about it, in part because progress is what America is all about, and science has been a very important part of helping the nation, indeed the world, make that progress. Now, of course, early in the nation's history, progress was about the exploits of America's adventurous explorers, and also about the grueling hard work of waves of immigrants, most of our ancestors coming to America. But in recent decades, progress has been more about research and education, science and technology, especially information technology, and from American human ingenuity and innovation has come so much of this progress. Again, it's hard work, but it's more brain than brawn, and in my view, is in part, maybe in large part, the message of science progress. Now all of that has happened in this country in the blink of an eye. Our lives for the most part have been more productive, more comfortable, and perhaps even more satisfying than the lives of our parents and grandparents before. Know how and the tools of science technology have given most of us the things that we need or things that we think we need. Now. I grew up in Oklahoma in the 40s and 50s and I have moments of nostalgia but they don't last very long. <laughs> I remember my childhood dentists, I remember the clunky cars my parents drove, uh, I remember the sound of the record player like it was yesterday and the movies that we went to, the, the cost of long distance telephone calls, my parents explained that to me very carefully, no air conditioning in a hot Oklahoma steamy summer, no warning of tornadoes coming. Uh, and all those other things and the clunky grind calculator that I used for some of my first research problems. I don't miss any of those kinds of things. Uh, Our kids and grandkids, for sure, have no notion of life before laptops and cell phones and iPods and iPhones and Blackberries and trios and all the rest of it. Technology is central to their lives and their future. They They live and breathe technology. It's embedded in their psyche. And often is attached to their ears, and in time other body parts, as well. American scientists and engineers have made many, in many cases, most of these extraordinary discoveries and technological advances, at least in the last half of the 20th century. True, America has benefited, and still does benefit today, from discoveries and inventions in other part of the world. Other parts of the world, bright people, inventive people, are born everywhere. But in this country. Everyone has a chance to be a player, and by making the breakthroughs on our soil, in our universities, in our laboratories, we get first dibs on the fresh ideas and the innovative new tools, as well as the skilled women and men who go on to invent new devices, to market new products, create new industries and jobs, make money, and fuel American progress faster than much of the rest of the parts of the world. Uh, Again, I think that's a message of science progress. But looking forward, the quality of our lives and the lives of our children and grandchildren in the 21st century will depend on the US continuing to be a leader in science and technology and the research that underpins that advancement. And I believe that kind of continued leadership is well within our grasp, but it is not a given. Our success will depend on America making many of the new discoveries and the new inventions But it will also depend on how we use that knowledge and technology to deal with a host of serious problems that threaten Americans, and in some cases, billions of people across the globe. And I'll mention three. First global warming, climate change, and the rising world demand for energy. The world must find this energy, use it more efficiently, and it must be carbon free. And most likely, we're going to need to sequester the carbon that's already up there. Uh, we can meet this challenge, I believe, but it's going to mean a fresh attitude about international cooperation and revolutionary technological advances in all energy domains, solar, bio, fuel, a fossil, nuclear in particular. There's no one silver bullet, but I believe nanotechnology still remains the most promising a path to success. Second on my list, competitiveness of America business and industry the quality and quality jobs for all Americans in what will be an increasingly tough world market. Now we can meet this challenge, but not by continuing our 100-year-old K-12 classroom methods. We need serious systemic change that tailors teaching of math and science and everything else to the backgrounds, the capabilities, and the needs of individual kids. And that means, in my view, developing and using new learning technologies that are based on how kids learn and we know a lot about how kids learn, and on the accelerating power of today's multitude of digital devices and the Internet. And my third issue, affordable quality health care for all Americans. We actually can do this as well by putting in place systems at the national, state, and local levels that make effective use of technology, for example, electronic health records and also by developing new minimally invasive diagnostic imaging testing and treatment devices made possible by advances in nanotechnology. And as an aside, unsolicited commercial, I think some of our Rice University researchers work in, in golden uh, nanoshells uh, it, it provide a very good example. Now tackling any one of these problems will require forward-looking policies and major increased investments in research and education. So let me close then by asking, how do I think we're doing? Well, troubling answers come from many directions, many fine reports. The Council on Competitiveness uh, has spoken out regularly on this matter, and Tom Friedman wrote a book. But I'll quote from one report in particular, the National Academy's 2007 report, Rising Above the Gathering Storm, which garnered strong bipartisan support from the Congress and the White House, and which made a compelling case for increased research support, especially in the physical sciences and engineering, and for programs to enhance science, math, and engineering education. Here's a short quote from the executive summary. It's easy to be complacent about U.S. competitiveness and preeminence in science and technology, but the world is changing rapidly, and our advantages are no longer unique. Market forces are already at work moving jobs to countries with less costly, often better educated, Uh, and highly motivated workforces. For the first time in generations, the nation's children and grandchildren could face poorer prospects than their parents and grandparents did." End of quote. So finally, I want to add two concerns or challenges that in my view deserve attention as well. First, with regard to research funding, we should increase research funding not only for the physical sciences and engineering but also for biomedical research with significant increases for stem cell research including, embryonic stem cells. The fund should not simply be used to grow ever larger medical complexes around the country and run them on federal dollars. The universities and medical schools need to face up to the fact that they must find non-federal resources to pay their share of the salaries and operating costs of the facilities. Otherwise, there's no controlling this spiral. And for all funding agencies, higher priority, I believe, should be given to supporting early career researchers, and funding high-risk research that's potentially transformative that has a chance of changing paradigms of science, engineering, medicine, technology. A, report, a recent report of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a panel chaired by Nobel laureate Tom Check, has recently made recommendations on these issues. My second point is the federal government needs to restore the public's trust in the integrity of science by making clear through the president's state, through our new president's statements and actions that science will not be used for partisan political purposes to spread dogma, that government publications and websites will be scientifically accurate, that government scientists can speak openly, that only the most qualified individuals will serve on advisory committees, and policy will actually be based on the best science. Ten years ago, I never thought I would (laughs) – thank you – I never thought I would ever put that down as bullets in a talk as something we needed to accomplish, it seemed very obvious to me. So, there's plenty for the new administration and Congress to do. They'll need our help and our support, so we need to roll up our sleeves to do that. I sometimes end my talk with a question, given all these challenges, why are my grandkids smiling? And I show a slide with my grandkids smiling. And I say, well, it's because I'm their granddad, you know. But the real reason, I think, is that there is cause to be optimism. It is precisely because what many of our children and grandchildren are prepared to do. They have the technologies, particularly digital technologies, and the savvy that we did not have. They know quite a lot about the challenges, and they sense that the U.S. cannot go it alone in the future, but rather will lead by example and by collaboration. And finally, they know how to work with others. They've had that experience. They know how to work with women and men of different backgrounds, different cultures, different belief systems of different colors. It's obvious to them that all people will need to work together and when necessary lift up others in this country and around the world who need help. But their success will depend on our efforts now to demand from our political leaders a forward-looking agenda for America and offer our assistance in putting that together. And science progress, in my view, is an excellent way to get that moving. So thanks for coming today to anticipate and celebrate what I think is America's bright future. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Dr. Lane. Next time we're going to get you in the science fair. Uh, So it's my pleasure now to introduce our panel. Uh, Many of you have had the opportunity to meet at least one of them. During the informal phase of the uh, program. Uh, and I'll, after I introduce them, I'll ask them to, to come up. First, uh, we'll have uh, Andrew Baden. Drew is professor and chair of the physics department at the University of Maryland. Kit Batten, who is here at American Progress, is a managing director for energy and environmental policy. Uh, Kathy Hudson is the founding director uh, of the Genetics and Public Policy Center. And Tom Khalil, who's a senior fellow here at CAP is assistant to the Chancellor for Science and Technology at the University of California at Berkeley. And our moderator will be uh, our colleague and friend R. Altecharo, who is the Warren P. Knowles Professor of Law and Bioethics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Law School. Folks?
3: to Dr. Lane and a signal of
4: your areas. Um,
3: so I appreciated the emphasis particularly at the end of sort of where we need to go in terms of increased research, but am I not on? Um I appreciated the comments particularly at the end of the three areas that we need to focus on, and I'd like to sort of comment on those and maybe extend those a little bit. Um, the first is the the issue with increased research funding. and I think we argue for increased research funding uh, fairly effectively, although there's always room for improvement. But we tend to ignore sort of what happens with all that research and what the obligations of government are beyond just the funding of the research. And so I think we need to extend our plea and our arguments and our advocacy to include uh, support for those agencies that are going to be the recipients of that. So in the case of biomedical research and genetics research, I'm signaling what I want to talk about, um, uh, specifically looking at the regulatory agencies. So we saw a doubling of the NIH budget and very little increase in the, um, the funding for the agencies that are involved in regulating the products that come out of NIH research. So that's a big problem. Um, secondly, um, the issue of uh, high-risk research. I was, uh, spent some time with an MIT professor earlier this week, and I was talking about a grant that was under review at NIH, and he said, uh, well, what research have you done? I said, well, no, this was research that I planned to do. And he said, oh, no, you didn't submit an NIH grant for work you hope to do. You only submit NIH grants for work that you've already done. I think that's a very sad commentary about our willingness to fund high-risk research. Um, And then the last point I wanted to make is about public trust and I totally agree that it's awful that you have to make the call that you had to make about uh, integrity of science and science not being a servant to politics. But I think there's other issues also involved in trust and namely um, the conduct of science and scientists has to earn the trust of the public and I think we've made some flaws uh, in the past the public by and large does trust uh, science and scientists, um, but we have to be always attentive that we are um, listening to and responsive to what the public's needs, interests and values are. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Drew?
5: I'm, uh, I'm not um, necessarily a uh, policy wonk. I'm uh, sort of on the, more on the front lines of science, although I'm now uh, Chairman of the Physics Department of Maryland and doing some administration and uh, but I plan to go back to it. Uh, my research is in particle physics and I'm uh, currently at uh, doing working on an experiment with 2,000 other people around the world at CERN. Uh, you might have seen in the newspaper uh, a month ago uh, worries about black holes being made at CERN and everybody dying. In fact uh, the whole universe was supposed to die. So this is amusing, this, is a, you know, this was a, an example of there's no such thing as bad publicity. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, I, I agree with everything Neil said. Um, I wanna give a, sli- you know, a slightly um, different perspective, not different perspective, but an additional component of that uh, and, and that's all about global warming. And as a member of the physical sciences, you know, global warming is something that came out of people interested in the effects of nuclear war, uh, how the atmosphere would respond to that much stuff dumped into it. Uh, um, and and it, it, it propagated into nuclear, in, into global warming. And people did a lot of computer codes, simulations at a time when they really didn't have the kind of computer simulations that we can do now um, just because they didn't have the computers. But people did some simulations and they said, this is really a problem. And now, you know, I'm in a position where I can fold my arms and smile and say, ah, I told you so. It was real. Okay. But so a, a lot of us in the physical sciences believed it 15, 20 years ago. I can't remember when this started, but not recently. And why is it that it takes, that, that there's no real input in, into not just the community, but the political community, from the scientists. What's happened such that the scientists can say, you know, the Earth's going to warm up and the seas are going to rise and it's going to be a disaster and, you know, when you put, uh, as a physicist, you know, when, when, when you tell me you're going to warm up the atmosphere by a degree, I immediately think of energy. Where's that energy going to go? Well, it's going it's to actually evaporate some more water, so you're going to have a lot more rains and it's going to make a lot more storms. Hello, I think this is what we're seeing. You know, it's, you know, it's rocket science, but it's not rocket science that nobody's done before. But, but yet, it took, it, took the, the, it took the culture, you know, our scientific, not just scientific, but the basic culture, a long time. And I think pretty much everybody believes, yeah, this is a problem, uh, just like people now believe energy is a problem. So I don't know what we have to do to get more science input into how things are run. But I think we're getting to the point where the problems are getting so serious that if we don't start being successful in doing this and and having a a positive effect, uh, just from a scientific point of view, you're gonna come across problems that no amount of economic activity is gonna solve. And I mean, I'm happy that your grandchildren are smiling, but I'm worried about your grandchildren because they're gonna have to foot the bill for this. And it's going to be a big bill. Thank
4: you, Tom. Um,
6: well, <laughs> I, I agreed with everything that Neil said. There were just a couple points that he made that I was interested in amplifying on. One is that I'm really concerned that uh, because those people uh, who have really not wanted to do anything on climate change have held out technology as the solution. Oh, don't worry about techni- don't, don't worry about climate. Uh, you know, in 20 years, we'll have the hydrogen car, that many people who work on uh, climate policy on the progressive side uh, are, are now sort of poo-pooing research and development because they're reacting to that. Um, and although it is clear that as the need uh, to stabilize greenhouse gas emissions, as, as our sense for what the, the threshold number that we ought to be trying to meet, has gone down as we've learned about all these nonlinear feedback loops and and tipping points and things like that I totally understand the sense of urgency that people have and clearly there are many things that we need to be doing right away uh, like retrofitting buildings but we need a portfolio approach we need to uh, uh, we need to be investing in long-term high-risk research so that we're gonna have some additional energy options whether it's on the efficiency side or the or carbon neutral energy production or sequestration or whatever. So I don't want to see the progressives fall into the trap of, uh, of reacting to those who are using technologies a delaying tactic to, to therefore conclude that progressives should not be for investing in, in long term uh, high risk research as one of the many things that we need to do. Um, building on the, uh, on the point about uh, you have to do the research uh, before you can write the proposal. An area where this has had a particularly pernicious impact uh, is uh, in DARPA, uh, which has historically played a very important role in supporting long-term high-risk research uh, and has recently moved much more in the direction of wanting to see results in the 12- to 18-month period. So one of the things that I hope the next president does uh, is to appoint a DARPA director that believes in the, in the value of Supporting this type of research because they play a very important role in America's innovation ecosystem. Um, I think um, a, a another issue that I think it's important to discuss is how is the nature of uh, the innovation process itself changing and what are the implications of that for science and technology policy? So, innovation is becoming increasingly interdisciplinary. People are talking about the c- uh, convergence of bioinfo and nanotechnologies. Uh, Innovation is occurring in a much more open way. Uh, You're seeing open source software, for example, and innovation marketplaces, things like InnoCentive, uh, where uh, companies are posting problems and then having thousands of scientists and engineers around the world try to solve them. Uh, As Neil mentioned, the capacity to innovate is no longer confined uh, to North America. Uh, You're seeing centers of innovation spring up all over the place. And so uh, al- although there's a lot of things that people have been calling for forever that we still haven't gotten done, like you know increasing funding for research and making the r and e tax credit permanent, I also think it's worthwhile to take a look at some of these changes in the nature of the innovation, pol- in the nature of the innovation process and saying, what are the implications for, for policy that should flow from that? The things that I am particularly interested in these days uh, that I would love to uh, get some questions about are uh, the link between science and technology on the one hand and uh, global development, things like global health and, and poverty alleviation. I think that the United States clearly has a lot of work to do to restore its reputation and image in the world. And I could think of no better way to do that than to harness America's capacity for for breakthroughs and innovation and apply those to some of the challenges facing developing countries. If we believe that every uh, human life has equal value, it's unconscionable that there's a 30 to 40 uh, year uh, gap in in life expectancy between the United States and and many countries in in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, And to Neil's point about uh, young people, what are young people doing? Uh, I, at Berkeley, I started a program called Big Ideas, that uh, provides uh, grants directly to students. And I think some of the uh, ideas that students are coming up with are, are really phenomenal. And this uh, this notion of supporting student-led innovation, I think, I- is really interesting as well. And I'd be delighted to talk about that.
4: Thank you. And our last panelist, Kit.
7: Well, we've heard a lot about uh, climate change and energy, and I'm very glad that you brought that up as one of the top three issues. In addition, uh, American competitiveness and industry, and there are real links between those two. And what we've done a lot uh, here at the Center for American Progress is to draw those links and also to build upon your last very good point, which I agree with, which is the optimism. If we're going to be placing our emphasis on addressing the problem of global warming by investing in American... Ingenuity by investing in innovation, by really taking this problem head-on, and being able to create new jobs, transition the way that we power our economy from increasingly expensive, dirty sources of energy to clean sources of energy. It has benefits across the board, uh, not just for human health, also for economic growth and opportunity. And we do a lot of work here at the Center for American Progress too, looking at ways in which uh, addressing climate change and global warming using science science-based facts to uh, alleviate issues related to po- to poverty as well. If we design the policies uh to implement this low carbon energy transformation correctly, we can not only grow our economy but also provide pathways out of poverty for people who've been left behind in the high carbon energy economy. And that's not just here in the United States, but that's also globally. So to build upon the point that you just made with respect to international development, and and uh, global development one of the main aspects with respect to looking at international negotiations and international agreements about how best to deal with global global warming is looking at how developed nations like the u.s. especially if we increasingly invest in research and development of new low carbon technologies can help transfer these technologies to developing countries help alleviate energy poverty in low carbon ways and really galvanize this transformation globally uh, I just wanted to comment on one other thing because I know we want to get to the discussion with the with the audience. In terms of the politi- politicization of science, that actually I, I finished my PhD in uh, 2004, and one of the reasons I came to Washington is the, is because of the Bush administration's politicization of science. And unfortunately, even though uh... as you said more and more americans do realize that global warming really is a big issue that's not the case still for politicians there still is a very big bipartisan divide and there was a national journal poll that was released this morning which polled actual members of congress And it seems hard to believe but still seventy three percent of republican members of congress think that global warming is not proven beyond a doubt as being as being something that we need to address and thirty percent of democrats feel that way uh... so there still is a lot of education that needs to happen uh... a lot of work on really communicating science to policymakers and then building upon that with real uh... science-based policy making Um so okay,
4: thank you. Um, i, I want to take just a moment um only because you can't stop me, uh, to make one comment about something that I think is threading through this and it follows on to what Kit concluded with and what Dr. Lane concluded with. And it's this, uh, th- this dilemma about uh, the na- notion of having policy based on truth and fact because there is actually a problem with the ownership of truth, especially as between the culture of science and the culture of politics. Scientists talk in terms of, of uh, hypotheses and uh, probabilities, and politics and law tends to move on the assumption that the case is X and we now need to base a policy on it. And and the trouble is, uh, it's not clear exactly who gets to own that. But uh, in light of the inherent uncertainty of science, I think we've seen it used to delay things, which is the case of global warming. Um, We've also seen it used to justify absolute falsehoods in the case of the Terry Schiavo uh, controversy and a number of things having to do with reproductive health. And then uh, nationally, we've also seen it just blurring the very definition of science in the uh, kind of continued attempts to introduce creationists and create creationism and in so-called intelligent design into the school systems. Uh, so somewhere in this conversation, I think, threads through the question of how it is that scientists can actually begin to, once again, take some degree of uh, responsibility for defining truth for the sake of the political community. Um, with that, I'd like to open it up to the audience and uh, short, sure, Rick. You get the first get the first question.
8: Uh, Rick Lampert, I'm about to become an emeritus professor at University of Michigan Law School. Um, like uh, so many here, I think I really like Dr. Lane's speech, but perhaps unlike them, I, I noticed one thing I would call a sin of omission, which I think it's important to call attention to. Uh, and this is when he generously said that he was not supporting not only support for the uh, physical sciences but also for the biomedical sciences. What I wanted to hear was also for the social and behavioral sciences. Uh, it's really interesting to me that I've heard four panel of five people actually speak poverty, climate change, energy, innovation, problems with study groups at NIH and now contests over truth. Every one of these areas is areas in which social scientists do research in which knowledge from social science is absolutely necessary to progress and in which social science has been historically and woefully underfunded. Uh, we don't get for all the social sciences what NIH gets for you know, one of its institutes. Uh, I spent a lot of time at NSF uh, in that area. I think if, uh, as is the case, people involved in science progress in this movement want to advocate for science-based policy and science-based progress they have to include in their ambit, just make it a habit to think and to speak of the social and behavioral sciences as sciences that must be listened to, must be funded uh, if we're going to make any advances.
4: Rick, I'm going to take that more as a challenge than a question, but Tom, you've worked at trying to organize students across disciplines too. Work on innovative solutions. Perhaps you've got some instincts about the way social science was integrated in those efforts.
6: <clears throat> well, actually, I, I wanted to sort of take his challenge on head-on, which is, I think that um, I, I think one of the so- things that the social science community needs to do uh, is to identify some specific areas where uh, social science can really make uh, a significant contribution. And let me give you a couple of examples that I think are kind of crying out uh... for additional social science if you look at the field of of education uh, less than point 0.1 percent of the na- the nation's expenditures in k-12 uh... uh e- expenditures go to research and development so there's very little cumulative increase in our understanding about what educational interventions actually improve academic performance uh... and uh, only a handful of randomized controlled uh, trials that would allow us to have a, a rigorous assessment about different interventions. So that's one example. If you're looking at healthcare expenditures, uh, it seems to me that the a, a lot of the big wins in reducing healthcare costs are going to come from people leading healthier lifestyles. So it, you know it's not these uh, thirty million dollar you know proton therapy systems that hospitals are now racing to build. Uh, It's uh, getting people to lead healthier lifestyles. And and clearly, the behavioral and and social sciences should have something to say about what programs actually uh, lead to improvements in in wellness. So I I think that if the social science community could just say, not just give us more money, but to say, here are five to 10 important problems that policymakers care about uh, where additional research in social and behavioral sciences, I I, I think that would be part of making the case for that.
4: Um, Actually, Rick, if I may, just because there might be some other people and our time is so terribly short. Um, But people are going to be up here afterwards. You can follow up and torment them then. Um, In the back.
9: Uh, Howard Bernstein, uh, independent. in terms of science and ethical uh, scientific exploration, uh, I it isn't it important that you know science be done under the rubric of you know our national values and you know one of one of those uh, important you know pieces of founding documents in the Declaration that we're all created equal, you know endowed with life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and you know how that should impact how we think about scientific research, particularly, for instance, embryonic stem cell research, not opposed to stem cell research in general or adult stem cell research or research that doesn't, you know, where you don't have to address issues of, you know, are you destroying, you know, nascent human life, but particularly embryonic stem cell research and, you know, DNA testing. And, I mean, I think there's important, you know, DNA, you know in genetic science that can go on but you know the potential for uh, moral problems if used in the wrong way and if I if I may because
4: I think I I think we've got somebody here who's just the right person to talk about this with you Kathy you've worked on the regulation of biomedical innovation for a long time and you called for more attention to regulation so maybe you can respond to the uh, question about how one incorporates national values
3: into that regulatory process Okay, which is going to dodge the stem cell question, which you are most uh, expert to address. So, um, you know, Americans' values shift over time, and the policies that we have in place to sort of govern how, for example, researchers uh, deal with research participants are now very, very old. So in the olden days, it was about how scientists could protect subjects from harm. It wasn't about a partnership. It wasn't about how we work together to do science. Um, It wasn't about what rights, um, other than not being harmed, the participants had. It was about a paternalistic system in which the researcher had to protect the research subject from harm. I think we need to really re look at sort of the research, human subjects research paradigm, in light of new values that we and we can use social science research to look at what people feel is important people want information when they participate in research and yet most research studies especially large population studies don't give information back to research participants so there's a whole area here where i think we sort of got stuck after we did the common rule and we wrote the regs you know we were sort of done with that and we have um... very outdated system Uh, in place now governing uh, research and it is social science research that's going to give us the answer to what do Americans really value and then how do you put that into play in policy making in real time and back to you on stem cells (laughs) well I'm, I'm only serving as moderator so first
4: I'd like to ask if there's anybody else in the audience who wanted to talk with our panelists yes
10: Mather, I have a business that provides consults on uh, the ethical conduct of research. And I'm not sure if this is a question directed more at you, Cathy, than anybody else. But I'd introduce my question with a little anecdote. Uh, It actually goes back to uh, the summer of 1944 when General Eisenhower was asked when D-Day was delayed, you know, should we continue to inspect the troops on a daily basis? His response is very simple. The uninspected deteriorate. So my question is this. What in your view of inspections, this would be regulatory agencies like the FDA, of research involving human subjects, impedes innovations or advances in biomedical research?
3: By inspections, I'm I'm not...
10: Regulatory agencies get out there and look at IRBs and look at investigators, and the hint has been that some of that is so officious Mm -hmm. that it impedes uh, any real advances in research. Just what your views are about that.
3: So there have been uh, uh, um, a number of cases where research institutions or research at institutions have been shut down because paperwork wasn't filed correctly by the IRBs, et cetera, et cetera. And so there is this sort of, you know, um, over attentiveness to T crossing and I dotting. Um, There's also this other interesting dilemma we have in the human subjects research context where we originally put, um, we had a decentralized system for oversight of research ethics. Because there's uh, uh, sort of to uh, because there's different regional values. I'm not quite so sure that's true anymore. And um, on IRBs, you have one lay member, and everybody else is associated with the research university. So how are you really getting those you know regional values instilled? What happens in especially in large multi-center studies is that you have to go through this IRB and this IRB and this IRB and this IRB and they all have different points of view not because ones in Georgia and ones in New York and ones in California but because it just happens to be a different gathering of people that slows down research and then you superimpose on it overzealous uh, uh, regulators and you, you waste money you slow down efficiency and you slow down progress
4: yes And then uh, a question, I actually want to add to the discussion about social and behavioral research that in fact I think we need to look beyond just biomedical research and really reach out to some of the physical sciences. For example, I'm working at the National Nanotechnology Coordination Office where social and behavioral research is informing a lot of our work. You know, There is a large body of research when you start looking at risk perception, risk decision making. And, um, and that it's really long established. So I think part of the struggle that I hear in the room is, how do we become more in- involved and more informed about other disciplines we're unfamiliar with? So I guess I'd like to hear more from the panelists as some suggestions. Uh, Drew and Kit, I think this
7: is right up your alleys. <laughs>
5: I'll let you do that. Put
7: you on the spot. Well, I think you're absolutely right that uh, interdisciplinary research absolutely must inform policy decisions moving forward um, in terms of the different issues that we've raised on the panel so far we we do actually within cap work quite interdisciplinarily we've got uh... folks who are working on education on poverty on health care on obviously energy and climate change issues on international security issues energy security issues Uh, energy poverty and uh, genocide etc so we have a whole variety of expertise that we can draw upon and frequently do meet in the microcosm that is the center for american progress uh... to try and do a lot of interdisciplinary work i know from my experience at uh... during graduate school that it is difficult unless you're specifically involved in an interdisciplinary grant which which i was lucky enough to be involved with i i worked uh, as a Interdisciplinary graduate research education and training IGERT fellow, (laughs) uh, which actually brought me here to Washington D.C. to do um, uh, an internship during graduate school on policy work related directly to my uh, dissertation research. So I I agree with you. I think that programs like the NSF IGERT can help with that, uh, but I think that we need more of them and and more of them more cross disciplinary than even just the IGERT was.
6: And it's worth noting that uh, NSF is willing to, able to fund 20 of those a year, and they got 400 proposals for yeah. IGERT. So that just tells you some uh, sense for the, what the demand is for programs like this and, and how, given current uh, resource constraints, how few of those NSF is able to support
7: May I- please? I'm now four years out, and I know from the amount of email traffic that I get from NSF tracking my every career move, that I know that they're really looking to do more of this and want to see what the impacts are, so I, I take that as a good sign. Kevin,
11: hi, I'm Kevin Fenner, and with issues in science and technology, and um, there are a number of questions that I think for a progressive group are easy to answer. You know, recognizing that climate change is a danger, recognizing that there's you know embryonic stem cell research that you go forward and so on. Um, there are also a group of questions that I think are, are trickier. Um, John Podesta did a piece for us on how we do demonstration projects in energy research in a way that's really effective. It's not a kind of ideological question. Um, Neil and Tom Khalil wrote for us about the nanotechnology initiative and how do we proceed with the developing new technology. And how we proceed doesn't really break down simply across ideological lines. There are not enlightened people and know nothings. So I wonder what are the other questions that to you are are troubling? I mean, assuming that the Democrats are going to sweep everything, what are the questions that remain unanswered and are still going to require a lot of effort for us to figure out what to do, how to act um, on
4: Who wants to tackle that first?
5: I think um, first things first. And if you really want this research to have an impact, then we have to do something to fix up the decaying, uh, we have the decaying infrastructure everywhere in this country. People say that we're a trillion dollars behind. But in the research uh, research infrastructure, we're behind. And the kind of buildings that most universities have for this are uh, at least 20 years old. And the only, bi- the only universities who can really afford to keep up are the private universities who are spending their endowment, which they have to spend. But the public universities are getting left behind, and three-quarters of all students are in the public universities. So the research infrastructure is a non-trivial thing, and a 20-year-old lab is most likely obsolete and not capable of being uh, ad hoc fixed up to support this these kind of things. And you know, you, it's one thing to have a new technology, you know, a couple of really smart people working on new technology, but if they don't have the lab to do it, they're going to go where the lab is. And that's, you know, a, a, for instance, a physicist or an engineer, the single most important thing for that person, imagine a young person who's just interviewing at a university or a lab for a job. And the single most important thing for them is where they do their work. Yeah, they're interested in the in the salary and the colleagues and things like that. But they're thinking about getting their work done and making an impact. And if they don't have a lab to do their work, they're gonna they're going to go where that lab is. And we're seeing the rest of the world catching up. Uh, it's not just uh, Western Europe. It's the it's Asia, um, Russia. They're taking people away from the U.S. now, and it is happening. And this is not it's not. Um, just anecdotal. It's really happening. So, without having the proper infrastructure to support this kind of research, and then of course you need the funding, uh, and you need the funding to support um, to support the in, the young or the, the starting up new individual PIs. You're not gonna you're not gonna see this happen. Uh, we're just gonna fall behind. And yeah, maybe you know, we'll statistically you know we'll have a certain fraction of the scientists that will make a certain fraction of these. Ins- of the discoveries, but we won't be in the
6: driver's seat like
5: we've been for the last 50 years.
6: So, things I worry about are number one, uh, the continued pressure on non defense discretionary spending. So, whoever the next president is, uh, you know, if you look at growing interest payments, uh, growing expenditures on, on entitlements, uh, the fact that uh, we still have Iraq and Afghanistan to worry about. Um, means that the ability of any president uh... to make investments uh... is certainly going to be constrained by a lot of those factors so that's one thing i worry about Um, you know as in the in the energy area as we start to move farther downstream and not only do uh... basic research uh... but uh... demonstration and deployment uh... i think we have to be mindful of some of the lessons of history uh... and 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 look at some of the things that were not all that successful during the during the late uh, 1970s and just as there are market failures there are also government failures uh, not enough information uh, in you know capture by particular interest groups uh, so I think the question is is how does the government intervene in a way that takes maximal advantage of, of market forces uh, and, and not intervene in a, in a way that is susceptible to uh, to uh, capture by a particular company or a particular industry.
7: In terms of the energy challenge and global warming challenge that we face all of these points are extremely important. I just wanted to also add in addition to technological innovation we've lost a lot of time with this uh, uh, with this government, not paying a lot of attention in terms of what the impacts of global warming are right here in the United States and focusing its attention on how best to adapt to the impacts that we've already locked into our future. So focusing, even getting back to your point on infrastructure, it's not just educational infrastructure, laboratory infrastructure, but also with respect to the infrastructure that powers our nation, our electricity systems, our transportation systems, all of these things, in addition to how natural systems and ecosystem services are going to be responding to global warming. These are all things that we need research on to better understand and prepare for.
4: I've been given the sign that, unfortunately, despite other questions, we're going to need to close up. But I can't resist with Kevin just one very brief comment. Because you were asking where it is that progressives don't yet know where to go. And there is, I think, again, kind of an overarching problem with. Progressives dealing with the conflict between scientific research and uh, civil liberties issues uh, and applications that we find really quite offensive. Um, We find periodically calls to criminalize areas of science because of fear that they'll be used for eugenic purposes. We worry that uh, biotechnology can be used not only to develop gene therapy but biological weapons. And there are periodic calls to criminalize areas of science. And I think the progressives really haven't yet grappled completely with whether or not we want to admit to an actual right to do science and focus just on dealing with the troublesome applications or whether we are going to yield to the call to actually shut down areas of science in the name of values or national security. Um, I wanna thank the members of the panel. I wanna reiterate for the audience that uh, after the conclusion of the program, there'll be time to talk with them informally. And uh, I'd like to invite John up here to introduce our closing speaker.
0: So, obviously, um, we've scratched the, the surface of the scratches on the surface, uh, but uh, we intend to have many more science progress events. Uh, we don't think these issues are going to go away, and I want to uh, thank especially, but you can go away, you know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we, um, Alta was admirably restrained as uh, in the moderator role. Uh, I do want to say about the stem cell issue, it's something Alta and I work on a lot, that actually, if you... If you look at at surveys of Americans on that issue with respect to American values, you find that the vast majority of Americans support embryonic stem cell research, and they support work in genetics. Kathy uh, Hudson's group has done a lot of survey work in this area. Uh, What people want is they want accountability, they want uh, uh, the the assurance that science is doing their work with integrity, Uh, and I think as progressives, we subscribe to both of you that science should go forward, but that needs to go forward by assuring the public that it's being done in a trustworthy way. Uh, that evidence is being taken seriously and that people are being listened to. And I think that really people want to be listened to about these issues. So um, speaking of being listened to, I think um, that our next and final speaker has educated more people about science and the ethics of science in, the, in his 15-year career at the Washington Post than all the professors in the room uh, have or will collectively. Uh, I, 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 those of us who uh, have been working in science, science policy and ethics uh, have spent many hours sitting by the phone uh, after an event has taken place hoping that, will Rick Weiss call me for a comment, please? So uh, one of the great uh, transitions in my professional life uh, and personal life is now I get to go down the hall and talk to Rick Weiss. Um, and as I told Rick uh, when he was told, talking to us about coming to American Progress, for some time at least when he calls people uh, from American Progress, they'll still think he's Rick Weiss of the Washington Post. So uh, I'm sure he'll be completely candid about it. Uh, so it is just a, a terrific pleasure to, for this coming out party, uh, for Rick uh, to introduce him. He is uh, going to be a tremendous asset to not only science progress but across the board with his skills in, uh, in, uh, in, in doing investigations and in organizing data and in communicating with the lay public. He's going to be a tremendous asset to American progress, and it's a, it's a pleasure to invite him for his maiden voyage uh, to hear his closing remarks. Rick.
12: Thank you, Jonathan. Um, I, I have to acknowledge up front that, that my plan when I was thinking about this yesterday was to uh, riff a little bit on how, uh, how much chutzpah uh, the science progress has for having its launch on a Friday the 13th. <laughs> um, you know, given the fact that so much of the country, one in ten Americans according to the Gallup Poll, thinks that this is a jinx day. Um, And we'd all have a good laugh about it and move on. And then, of course, all the electricity went off (laughs) throughout Washington for the whole morning. We were thinking, this thing is finished. Um, And a lot of people in this group here were looking at me sort of cross-eyed because they had known what I was going to be up to. I I want you to know that in my sort of, uh, just because of the leftover habits of my reportorial days, I called the press spokesman at Pepco (laughs) uh, late this morning, uh, Bob Dobkin, and I wanted to ask him, you know, what are the facts? Does this happen more on Friday the 13th or not? Um, And he assured me, and we went through some of the data, it it does not. (laughs) Uh, Friday the 13th happen anywhere from one to three times per year, for those of you who don't know, uh, blackouts like this happen virtually every day somewhere. (laughs) Um, The last big one uh, in Georgetown here a few years ago, 160,000 or so people out. It was not a Friday the 13th. The biggest one in Europe was a Tuesday the 28th. The biggest one in U.S. history was, okay, it was actually, it turns out, a Saturday the 14th. A little close. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) I, I just don't want anyone to get hung up on that false association. Um, And I am really proud to see that Science Progress has no fear about this sort of stuff. And it does seem symbolically appropriate to taunt the date and do the launch today. Uh, I I tried to imagine what it would be like if we lived in a world where there was uh, no superstition um, or where at least uh, facts or or rational thinking of the sort that you'll find in this issue and on the website were to trump superstition on a day-to-day basis. Uh, You know, imagine a world... Uh, where there was not the superstition where people think that uh, that educating uh, about safe sex is going to lead to rampant promiscuity, for example. Um, Or a world where the superstition didn't exist that access to the morning after pill is going to uh, lead women to choose abortion as a means of routine birth control. Uh, Or the superstition that needle exchange programs are going to encourage people to become heroin addicts because now they can without worrying about infection. Uh, The superstition that the earth is 6,000 years old, for example, and that life as we see it today has been like this since the beginning of time. The superstition that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. I mean imagine what the world would be like if, if sort of reason and evidence were really the currency of the day. Um, I'm one of the reasons I'm so happy to be here is that this is a place that uh, has a real commitment to to getting that kind of information out and I think we all would agree that there's no question that this sort of uh, education is needed a few frightening statistics, half of Americans don't know how long it takes for the Earth to circle the Sun. Um, presented with the statement, humans and other living things have existed in their present form since the beginning of time. Forty-two percent of Americans say yes, that's true. Virtually every US newspaper uh, has an astrology column today. Very few have science columns anymore. It's a shrinking number. It used to be a hundred in the late eighties, hundred newspapers. It's down to the high twenties now. The Washington Post just killed its science page uh, a month or so ago and shrunk it to a half a page. And I'm told that that may itself disappear very soon. Um, And it's not just Americans who are wallowing in scientific ignorance. There was a poll in Europe back in 1996 that asked the following question, true or false, the difference between a conventional tomato and a genetically engineered tomato is that the genetically engineered tomato has genes. (laughs) Okay, so 40% said true in 1996. Four years later the question was asked in a poll again, this time 46% said true. Trend lines are are bad. Um, Now I know that CAP is not a science educational institution per se. But it is a place that has been thinking uh, a lot about the problems that are facing this country. And I think one of the recurring themes we've heard today is that whether you're talking about health care, energy, environment, food security, climate change, uh, science is uh, obviously has a huge role to play in our resolution of all these problems. And it's great that CAP is, uh, I think, increasingly recognizing that and, and looking for inclusion of the scientific component of the solutions to these problems. And uh, I thought I'd mention just on a personal note one of the things that really makes me especially happy about working in a place like this now that I've made the, the leap and, and mention to you one of the great frustrations I had back in my days of newspapering, especially at a very political paper like the Washington Post where I was part of this very small and and sort of uh, uh, well, I won't say undervalued, but uh, discriminated against or l- uh, uh, we were an odd minority, we, we science reporters there, the way we kept calling for evidence and everyone else was just quoting whatever a politician said, because that was the news, because they said it, we uh, were like, really? But that's baloney. <laughs> well, that doesn't apply for this part of the paper. Um, you know, I- but in, in a newspaper, for so many sections of the paper, uh, there was just this assumption that if you're reading that part of the paper, um, you already knew something about it, and there wasn't an obligation on the part of the reporters in these other sections beyond the science section um, or the science articles to really explain your terms and talk and, and define what you're talking about. If business stories would just have all these business terms thrown in, and the assumption is if you don't get business, uh, then you shouldn't be reading this section, and, you, and if you, uh, it's just meant for people who are into business. And, of course, the, the biggest... Uh, Violator of this rule of actually communicating with your readers was the the sports section. It used to just drive me nuts, the kind of stuff that was in the sports section. Uh, I've saved my favorite examples. I'll read a couple for you. Imagine, I don't know, just reading this cold and trying to figure out what this story is about. These are actual quotes. Quarterback Reggie Ball took a shotgun snap, bounced in the pocket, and unleashed a missile down the center of the field where Johnson had split safeties, Jamal Jackson and Byron Glaspie, on a post. <laughs> I wouldn't get past my editor on a science story. Uh, or this one. Followed by hundreds of mud-spattered spectators, Sorenstam started on the back nine, reeled off 13 straight pars, added two birdies and two bogeys in her final five holes and posted an even par 71. I mean, imagine you're not a golf aficionado. I mean, setting aside the question of what bogeys, birdies, and par are, how can the number par 71 be called even? You know, But for me, when I would write my science stories, the minute I throw in a word like amino acid, all the editors are jumping all over me like, well, you can't use a word like that. You've got to define your terms. And by the time you're finished defining everything, there's no room left for the news. Anyway, this is all to say that one of the things I really like about the products I see coming out of this place, including American Progress, is that it's very democratic in its requirement that you really talk plain English, make some, some down-to-earth practical recommendations and make it understandable to everyone, um, including members of Congress and other policymakers who could benefit from the kind of wisdom coming out, uh, the public that needs to understand these issues better. And maybe the other benefit besides the fact that it's actually, uh, you know, getting good information out to people who need to hear it is that gradually I think this sort of this sort of work, uh, this sort of effort to get good information out, especially with regard to science and and science progress, is that it starts to reignite something that I think has really become almost dead in this country, which is just, and and a beautiful thing, curiosity. You know, the desire to know, the recognition that it's fun and pleasurable to learn new things, not only that it's practical, but that there's all this interesting stuff going on in the world. Uh, that we can leverage to our benefit and also just appreciate for its beauty and to learn how to start asking the right questions so that we can start solving all of the problems that face us. Um, and asking the right questions is so important. I know it's important in journalism. I think it's it's also true, obviously, in policymaking. And I, I thought to, uh, to just end this, I'd tell you one of my favorite little jokes that focuses on the topic of asking the right question, and it has to do with... Uh, a, uh, a monk in a monastery, say a Buddhist monastery, who goes up to the abbot and says, uh, you know, they're all supposed to be meditating all the time and, and achieving enlightenment, and he, he asks the abbot, is it okay if I uh, smoke a cigarette while I'm meditating? And the abbot says, no, you shouldn't smoke a cigarette while you're meditating, Just you should be meditating. And he goes back to his cushion to start meditating, he looks around and he sees another mo- monk nearby smoking a cigarette while he's meditating. And he goes up to him and says, well, I just heard from the abbot. We're not supposed to be doing that. And he says, really? The abbot told me it was OK. He said, really? Well, what did, what did And the one who's smoking says, what did you ask him? And he said, well, I asked him if it's OK if I smoke while I meditate. He said, that's your question. You asked, that's, that's your problem. You asked the wrong question. I asked him if it's OK if I meditate while I'm smoking. He said, yeah, sure. You should be <laughs> meditating as much as you can. <laughs> So if we keep asking the right questions, maybe we'll finally get the right answers and uh, may we all start implementing them as soon as possible. Thanks, thanks very much.
0: So we hope we've left you breathless, not to allude to smoking again. Um, For more science, more science policy and more science progress, I want to specifically say that uh, the events team, uh, Marlene, Susie, Tyler, others, the interns, Really worked hard on this event and actually it was the events group that thought of the idea of, of having this sort of mini science fair uh, in the beginning, therefore making our lives a lot harder. So I want to uh, express our gratitude to you, to everybody who uh, works behind the scenes to make this possible at American Progress, to uh, our, our wonderful keynoter, Dr. Lane, thank you for flying up from Texas for this, getting your visa stamped from Texas for this. Uh, uh, our panel and Rick Weiss, uh, we will uh, look forward to continuing this conversation with you for a long time to come, and uh, thank you for coming out today, and thanks to the electricity for coming back on. Thank you.